Hey everyone, welcome to Rajit Show, the show where I interview people who are reshaping what it means to live well in the 21st century. We talk the creator economy, learning and building in public, and how we can hack our way out of our most pressing issues. Enjoy. Hey, what's up? How you doing? Hey, how are you? <laughs> Not bad. So yeah, this is awesome to talk to you. Like I mentioned, Undercover VC followed me on Instagram and I'm like, wait, like how is someone in college starting this scout network of Undercover VC called Undercover VC? And obviously you've spun up the website and everything and you're, you seem to have that technical part down, but I'm just interested. Where did that idea come from? Yeah. When you look at how venture capital, both careers and actual investment are distributed across college campuses. There are about five campuses that collect the vast majority of of the opportunities on both sides of that coin. I do not go to one of those campuses. The other members of our team do not go to those campuses. Me neither, me neither. <laughs> um, and, and so our goal was to, to bring some of those resources, the, you know, your founder at Berkeley or Stanford or, or Penn would have to the, the Indianas, the Arkansas and the Clemsons of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the way um, Scout Network typically works and jump in here, a Scout Network is going to be, you're going to deputize students on campuses. And mm-hmm. so these students are going to go around and find cool and interesting startups, ideas, founders, and then connect them with undercover VC. Is that how it's going to work? Almost. Um, so we, while we function very similarly to a Scout Network, we like to call ourselves a fellowship program. Okay. Uh, reason being that typically the scout relationship is super one-sided, that the scout is going to do a lot of work for the VC in exchange for what, a, a resume line item, whether often the scout doesn't get very much in return at all gotcha. uh, until sometimes when, when you, if you refer a deal that thing gets closed, then maybe you'll get a check. But even that is not very consistent. We tried to create a situation where there really is a mutually beneficial relationship between fellows in our program and and the program itself and the, the scouting they're doing for us. The way we do that is by putting on events, fireside chats, workshops with VCs in industry that if you're a, if you're a student at, at Berkeley, you've got VCs on campus. They're doing talks, they're recruiting, they're around. Again, if you're at, if you're at Arkansas, that's not happening. So we're mm-hmm. trying to, to bring those VCs to your campus as, as close as we can through that and have a mutually beneficial relationship in that sense. That's awesome. And um, yeah, one of the things I think about is just how people are leveraging the internet to provide value. And it definitely sounds like you're doing that because that VC could be anywhere, especially right now. It's not like he has to fly into Arkansas to provide value. That's awesome. And so talk to me a little bit about how this idea started. I'm assuming it's relatively new. Is it a product of COVID or it's one of those kind of butterfly effect things where it it has to be, even though I can't give you a direct causal link. What I will say is I way back, I talked to contrary capital about, I think you should have a presence on at Indiana. I think I'm the guy, et cetera. And and they were, "Eh, we don't, you know, there's not really anything happening in Indiana that, that we're concerned with. We're not too worried about it. And I found that there are other students with that same experience that they were getting turned down from these big student venture programs, not because they weren't qualified, but because their campus did not fit whatever, what, whatever reputation those organizations wanted those campuses to have. And so undercover came out of, you know, if y'all aren't going to do it, I'm going to, I'm going to do it myself. 
Um, and that's where it came from. What I will say is, uh, I can't say that there, I don't know that there's a direct causal link. I have no idea. They probably planned it for months, but I find it highly coincidental that seven to 10 days after we announced our application, both of our thesis, both dorm room fund and contrary capital announced, oh, we will be doing away with campus restrictions for the, the 2020 recruiting year. We want people from everywhere. And so while I can't say, and honestly, I doubt that's attributable to our program, it is coincidental that we were able to create that change so quickly. That's awesome. And so what I'm also interested in is how long have you been interested in this VC space? The, the real answer is probably fifth or sixth grade, oh gosh. Uh, which I know is a silly answer, but it's as my, my dad was in venture capital for a long time and that's where I was exposed to it young and why I'm well positioned to, to get on the ball with this um, earlier than most. Yeah. So is Undercover VC the uh, fellowship? Is it this access to VCs and fireside chats and, and guidance? Or is it also, are, are people writing checks? Yeah, great question. So Undercover VC is not a fund. We are not writing checks directly. What we're doing is trying to be, think of how an agent works for an athlete, right? They're going to have an athlete that's doing their thing on a particular team, making a name for themselves. The agent is not going to write them a check directly, but the agent makes the connection to mm-hmm. Nike or Adidas or in Travis Scott's case, Fortnite and McDonald's and a bunch of other random gotcha, brands. Gotcha. And we see ourselves as that agent for student founders that we want to make the connection, leveraging our fellows network to find the founders, leveraging our investor network to find the checks to then make that connection between the investors that want to invest in students and the students that need investment. We, we came to that model because our first thought was, oh, you know, let's raise a fund and go make some investments. Mm-hmm. That's an 18 month plus process if you're not already a, a high net worth individual, which obviously I am not. And Wade's just sitting on millions back there to give you guys. Yeah, no, no chair, just a sack of cash. No, that, that was going to take too long. To be frank, that was going to be like, I got three years left in college. That was going to be at least one and a half of them just to figure that out. And then it's like, what's right. even the point? So we agreed on that. We, we arrived at this model of let's be the center of the spokes on the wheel. And that has the added benefit of kind of automatically creating that, that great network of investors and you know, partners and, and GPs and everything for our fellows to, to network with and be exposed to and, and create that program. Mm-hmm. And regardless of just where people's companies go, this is also an awesome networking opportunity, it sounds like. And so have you met anyone particularly inspirational that stands out so far? Do you have any favorite stories yet? So I'm not sure I have like a direct favorite story yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I did buy <laughs> through some undercover some people I met through Undercover, I did get a Clubhouse invite. So I talked to like Meek Mill and people on Clubhouse, but um, not really <laughs> directly. I don't have any good inspirational. I haven't, oh, talked, man. To, I haven't talked to to Mark Andreessen or anybody yet. <laughs> not yet, not yet, but I'm sure it's, yeah. it's, it's coming for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. Meek Mill, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. And I know Clubhouse, Clubhouse has been in the news a lot and, and on Twitter, just people talking about there's different, there's different things going on there. And I wonder how much of that sort of other people hating on Clubhouse comes from the fact that Clubhouse is like an invite only community. 
but yeah, I can't speak to any of that controversy. That was all before me, before me being on the platform. So I really, yeah, I, I have not seen any of that. I have no doubt that it exists, but I've not seen it. Yeah, no, Wade cost it. Um, <laughs> so you, we are all on campus, right? And then I'm assuming Indiana, what, around March, you're asked to go home? Yeah, Mar- March 13th. Yeah. Okay. Same, same for me. Same for me. <laughs> I, I think I'm heading back for spring break for a week and it, I'm stuck at the house for nine months. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, what's going through your head when it's okay, I'm going to be at home for a pretty long time. I, I had the, that week was a perfect storm of major life changes for me aside from COVID and my, whether it's healthy or not, who knows, but my kind of response to any kind of, I don't want to say, you know, there's like a stress that's all I got assignments due this week. And then there's a stress that's like everything in life is changing right now. Stress. Yeah. My, so my reaction to the first stress is to procrastinate, but my reaction to the second kind of stress is the opposite. And it's to get really busy and and throw myself into something, sometimes something great and sometimes something silly Mm -hmm. and distract myself from that in that way. In this case, I realized I needed to figure out something to do. I needed an internship for the summer. Mm-hmm. Obviously, something in person would have been great, but increasingly it, it appeared, you know, as March wore on, that was not going to be the reality. And I, in those first two weeks I was home, I was like, okay, I need an internship. For an internship, I need to meet a bunch of recruiters. And I need, I'm, so I'm a finance and CS major. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, I was like, very finance heavy on my resume and had a hard time convincing people about my CS knowledge for recruiting purposes. So mm-hmm. I needed like a kick-ass portfolio project to go with it. And I said, how can I accomplish both of these things in, in one go? Let's build a jobs board. It gives me a pretense to meet a bunch of recruiters and is a, a good like full stack web portfolio project. I did that with the focus, I called it co-intern, with the focus of internships you can do from your house in the in this crazy time that being way more popular than I I thought this was going to be like oh maybe a couple of kids at IU will use this but yeah. I was expecting to use it as a pretense to reach out to recruiters yeah. what I did not expect was recruiters and students reaching out to me and then this thing ballooning to like 100 something thousand users and that was you asked if undercover was the result of covid and the answer is no, not directly, but undercover is the result of Covintern and Covintern is directly the result of COVID. So to that butterfly effect I mentioned earlier, I think, I guess I have to amend my answer to yes, but that kind of, I don't know, changed. It's, you hear a lot about, you know, your wins compounding and that you got to build momentum to, to do things and having that viral success on and building something that people used like that in that sense set me up so I'm like oh shoot like I can get after it and do this next thing and and that was undercover and I think that 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 snowball is rolling and I hope that snowball continues to roll through my career yeah I hope it does I hope it does for you too um it's a pretty popular story someone makes something and they make it for themselves oh no one will use this Mm-hmm. We'll cut that out after. So you make something and then a hundred thousand people use it. So what's going through your head? So, I mean, the first thing was 
I did not optimize my, any of my, like it was on AWS, like it was set up to be able to scale, but I did not optimize like how I was doing it for the cost of a hundred thousand people on here. So I got uh, a nice big old AWS bill that much that I did not expect. That was one thing. I love how you started with that, right? (laughs) Yeah. I got like 400 LinkedIn requests from random kids across the country that I I didn't accept because I'm like, I can't do anything for you. You can't really do anything for me. That was my, my, my like three weeks of internet fame there uh, was a little, that's, that's pushing it a little bit, but that was certainly unexpected, but I don't know. It was Honest, at the end of the day, I got lucky. Like it was a pretty, like the first draft of that website I launched was the most disgusting thing I have ever, like in my career of writing code, it was the nastiest looking thing I've ever built. And then once it got like a few thousand users, I was like, shoot, this might not be what I want to put out into the world. And I like stayed up all one night and redid the whole front ends and made it look nicer. But yeah, I don't know. I honestly, at the end of the day, I, I kind of got lucky. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was certainly not the only one doing quarantine jobs board. The, the team at, so do you know like the ladder community? Yeah. 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 So they, they started doing the exact same thing mm-hmm. um, with remote students. They started with, it's interesting. They started with an air table and right. then were able to like pivot and grow their community into this whole like online platform. I started with like a online platform, but just, dropped it. I didn't pursue it and see the pivot to move past the jobs board in the way that they did. Yeah. Um, but I'm I mean, glad they did that. There, Yeah. Theirs is a little different in that, first of all, both those people took time off of school after that shift happened. But yeah, they have pivoted it in a really interesting way. Because like you said, they started off with something really simple, just out here, some internships we found. Mm-hmm. And yours was a little different in that sense, in that I think there was more interaction between I, I was just looking at COVID intern before, just just before, but yeah, I think there was more interaction between sort of recruiters being able to post jobs on your end, but yeah, they've transformed it into this whole, like, we're not just the place to find an internship. We're like the place for you to launch your career. And so obviously hence yeah. the name changed to the ladder. Yeah. I think that's a, I'm curious to follow that and, and watch what they do. I think what they went through pair, which they went through some incubator. Yeah. Pair VC. Um, yeah. Anyway. They, yeah, so there was them. There was intern from home up at, at Brown. The in, intern from home was able to swing the New York Times for their media coverage. I, I got Market Watch, which like I can't be mad at. And and RQ you got Morning Watch. Brew. You got and Morning Brew. I did get Morning Brew one. too. That's right. Yeah. Um, that that's a really cool story, actually. I did. So let's see. How did I do? Yeah. So Morning Brew, we somebody on my team found that internship at found like whatever that it was like daily newsletter intern, I think at mm-hmm. morning brew posted it to Cove intern. Somebody applied to it, got it through Cove intern and then turned around and wrote about it because they like landed that internship through the Cove intern platform, right. um, which is like such a cool way to get that. That's media. awesome. That's so much more fun than a press release to get media coverage. Um, which I thought was really cool. That's awesome. And, I think we see that just in, in little ways all the time is that if you provide value to someone else, you talked about it snowballing, that's it snowballing right there. It's someone turning around and say, okay, let me provide value to the person right. that got me here. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was just thinking about something that you said earlier. We hear this phrase, create your own luck. 
And so you were saying that I got lucky. And so you go out and you create this first thing, not expecting it to become nearly what it ends up becoming. And so what are the lessons that you take from that first, not necessarily maybe the first thing that you've created, but that first sort of success into how you think about undercover VC, just how you think about creating things in general? It is really important. And I've heard this from the, the VCs we're working with undercover too. If you're able to, like this is startup specific advice, but not necessarily. If you're able to iterate on your product at like Usain Bolt speed, you're going to be at such an advantage to when you talk about like startups disrupting big industry players across the board, the advantage a startup will have is the startup doesn't, you know, need board approval or doesn't have to get management approval. And even if it's like days faster, you're still moving faster in my specific situation for Cove intern. First of all, like had I, I told you I launched the first version was disgusting had I waited until I had something that was like really clean and polished and I was really proud of to launch, Mm -hmm. it would not have done a 10th of, of what it did that. I mean, timing, all of that is so important. Reading the room there, I get, just like I said, had I waited another week to launch Covintern, it would have done exactly what I, what I'd predicted of the 40 of my friends might look at it rather than what it ended up doing because it was, we were right in that, like, tumultuous period. There's also, there's some good psychology there. There's when you, you think about, I've always thought it's, there are so many products in the market that just seem silly for infants that new parents are getting taken advantage of left and right with random things that people are like, oh, no, you need this for your baby. Or like this crib is certified differently than this crib or, or whatever. We have a different safety rating. When like Sacagawea went across the country with a baby tied to her back with a piece of leather. Mm-hmm. Um, that kid survived. I think there's a lot of marketing, not to get on a, too much of a tangent. There's a lot of marketing to people in tumultuous periods of their lives. There are lots of, you, you look at the graduation ads, everybody has stress about going to college and companies try to capitalize on that by, oh, if you buy this thing, this is what you need for college. And like, oh, I don't want to have a bad time at college, better buy this. In the same sense, I jumped in with the you know, this is a tumultuous time in, in college students' lives. Here's a product that can help be the solution. I was not thinking that deeply about it at the time, but I happened to time that release perfectly with the peak of that stress, right? As stuff was getting canceled. Yeah. Had it been after once people had been like, okay, we see what's happening. We understand so on and so forth. I don't think it would have been, you know, been what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then people go over to ladder or whatever's going yeah, on. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of a lot of people have kind of people that were on COVID turn have moved over to ladder, and I'm glad for to the extent they can since it's application only. But I've I'm, I've talked to the team there. I like them a lot. Like their product a lot. I did an AMA over there not too long ago. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, I think this shift is particularly interesting in that the everything going virtual has obviously and it makes sense to us now but i think it's obviously clear with the benefit of hindsight but it's created these online communities that are providing enormous value so as you mentioned covintern had the potential to become a community once you capture a hundred thousand eyeballs mm-hmm. um, and so ladder became that community there's other ones um gen z mafia is a really popular one now I love Gen Z Mafia. Yeah, you're on there? Yeah. Okay, I could have just reached out to you on there then. 
Yeah. That's cool. I gotta, I'll plug your stuff after this. On there. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've not been on there very long, but I've followed Gen Z Mafia since its inception. And I'm, it's su- super impressive what Suds and the guys have yeah. done with that. Yeah. So I actually spoke to Sudarshan on Tuesday. Yeah, on Tuesday. On this podcast or just generally? On this, on this podcast, right. On this recorded cool. Zoom call I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was so interesting. I'd love to get your, what you think about this. But, you know, here's someone, he told me so many unbelievable stories, but here's someone, right? So he's a junior, right? So I'm assuming you're a sophomore like me now, right? Yeah, so he's one year ahead of us in, in college. He's going to Clemson. And he just has this ability to make decisions so fast. So he goes um, and he sees this opportunity. I don't remember the name of the opportunity, but they're offering money to college students. It's a VC fund. They're offering money to college students for an idea as long as one of the students drops out of college to pursue the idea full time. Teal Fellowship? I don't know if it was the Teal Fellowship just because Contrary Capital is doing a similar thing around the time. Mm-hmm. And so I just feel like... It was such a COVID thing. It could have been any number of things. Yep. But don't let me, don't let me derail you with that. Keep right. Up. Yeah. So then he, he just, he messages all these people that he met on Twitter and literally it's just, okay, you guys are my team now. I've dropped out of college. We're working on this idea. Let's go. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so then, and it's a similar story, right? He has this idea for firefighting drones, thinks about it a lot. Just like, okay, hardware is hard. And then just talks to people and they pivot to software. Okay, a couple of days later, right, the sky is red in San Francisco, mm-hmm. messages his team, and then 15 days later, he's in SF, and Fion is a thing now. Mm-hmm. And it's just this whirlwind story that I think parallels how, parallels like the momentum of Gen Z Mafia too. I think the number of people on Gen Z Mafia, right, 100 people, 200 people has exploded. There's like 2,500 people on there now, mm-hmm. which is part of the reason why I didn't necessarily find you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> that's a lot. But interesting, and I'm, I'm really interested in how you think about leveraging this online community, but also just what you think about the other people to the right and left of us doing amazing things around this time. Yeah, so I'm not sure, I'm not sure I'm... I've spent a lot of time lately, obviously, we're building a community with Undercover. That's the product we're offering to students. I spent a lot of time researching and, and trying to understand how all the... I've got... Hold on. Oh, he's got a demo for us. I've got my, my, my Stripe Press here uh, right behind me. I, I had to turn the video off so you can't see that I have sweatpants on. But um, <laughs> I've got my Stripe Press community building literature... I've been researching a lot and and dedicating a lot of time to that. I don't know. There's some interesting things with communities, right? Exclusivity has been huge in the last couple of years. Supreme and that whole kind of like drop energy. Um, And and now that it it used to be that businesses couldn't really be, and when I say used to be like in the 1950s, be like offering an exclusive product because they were limited geographically to who they could sell to. Now that I can sell to somebody in, Shenzhen, China, just about as easy as I can sell to somebody down the road. You know, the geographic is not a thing. So they create, companies create value in, in artificial scarcity, which wouldn't have, wouldn't have made sense 50 mm-hmm. years ago. But that has extended to communities. And I think there are a lot, I mean, the, just the ballooning of like fellowships, applicate things like Clubhouse, things like Gen Z Mafia, these exclusive or at least 
appear to be exclusive groups. Yeah, got so big. Gen Z Mafia. I don't think it's. I think if you fill out the application, they send you the Discord invite. But it um, didn't used to be that way. Mm-hmm. It didn't used to be that way. Yeah. No. The other thing I like to to look at with communities is creating a community culture. Having your own languages, traditions, values seems like something that would have to be so like emergent that you'd have to be like in it for three years, and after a while, you'd start to you'd have developed some traditions and and sayings and stuff. It's amazing to me how intentional you really like in building a community have to be with those things. That you know, I remember one organization I was a part of that literally like when you joined the organization, they gave you a like a handout that was like here is our vocabulary, and it was all kinds of slang and stuff relative relevant to to what the group was doing, which seemed very like heavy handed at the time, but it ended up being a lot of fun, and people really really picked it up and used it and ran with it, um, mm-hmm. and actually absolutely did establish some community there, things like that. And so we've been trying with Undercover to be really intentional with what are our values and what are our principles, what is our culture going to look like, and before we've even brought a single person into the Slack and into the Zoom call, what is this going to look like and, and the extent to which we can engineer this to be the, the kind of community we want to create, we, we want to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what do you think is the most important in, yeah, I know you've been doing some research into this, but I don't totally know if you'll be able to answer this question. But anyway, what do you think is the most important in making someone feel involved and energized in that sort of community? Um, so two things. So the first thing is I don't like when there are like many, many nesting dolls of like in groups, Mm -hmm. right? So if you have an application only group, then once you're in different people can have different responsibilities, but it really grinds my gears when they're like, you know, nesting down, like a more exclusive group within the group and then an exclusive group within that one. I think if you're going to have have an in-group and an out-group. Have an in-group and an out-group. You don't need a, an in-group and an in-in-group and an in-in-in-group. That, I don't like that in communities. That turns me off from communities I'm a part of. The second thing is... Oh, shoot. What was the second thing? Oh, I thought this out so well. Had it prepared. Oh, the second thing is remember you're always selling, right? So this is a big problem I see with student organizations. Organizations like to you know, a, a group I was in in high school, it was our, our high school national honor society had really low membership to meetings, right? The solution the leadership offered was, Oh, we need to implement this attendance point system. Not Boy. there's a reason people don't want to come to our meetings. Mm-hmm. And I think in organizations and making people want to be involved, organizational leaders sometimes fall into this, this, you know, trap of, I'm selling the organization to get people in once they're in and they have responsibilities to the group and all that. And that's really not the case. You're selling as much to get people to your events, to get people involved through the life of the organization as much as you're selling to people that want to join the organization. And I think a lot of, a lot over, I would say the majority of student organizations forget that. And once you're in, they start with, you know, the example I like to give is I know of one organization that will send out a text to be like, analyst meeting tonight, attendance required, 7 p.m. That's all they give you. Well, that, that doesn't make me want to come. You've already, you've already come after me with the attendance required. You haven't told me what value this is going to offer for me. 
Now, if you did for the same event, you don't even have to change the actual attendance policy, but just in your email or message, getting people to come be like, we will be having guest speaker from analyst at Goldman Sachs will be speaking to us tonight about why all the effort the organizational leader is taking is changing the text of that message, but it makes all the difference in getting to people to this event and with people's attitude when they arrive at the event. If they're like, oh, I'm excited to see what's happening tonight. I've got my questions I want to ask, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a whole different vibe for, for your event than I'm here for the required analyst meeting so I, so I don't get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that totally changes the tone of, I think it changes the influence and the snowball effect of how many people that that organization can impact and how much value it can actually provide. And so I think, Red I, you know, you mentioned high school and I can definitely think of examples in high school where I probably made that mistake, but definitely I've seen other people make mistakes. But at the time I chalked it up to just clubs in high school are a joke. But yeah, I, I guess that's not the case. Even in college, you start to see people really get into these things because you start to see the ability to provide real value and make real impact which is certainly something you guys are doing over at Undercover BC. I hope. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the goal. So you mentioned a team, right? So you have a group of people building this together with you. I'm assuming from IU? No. We, so I've tried to be intentional and in, we are not associated with IU student organizations in any way, shape, or form because I don't want Undercover to be affiliated with IU. Okay. Beyond that, the IU endowment makes venture or i there is a iu has a subsidiary called iu ventures that makes investments we are affiliated with them as an investment partner but as we are not an iu student organization or anything like that that's intentional and i've also tried to be intentional both in recruiting fellows and in recruiting members of my team that there there are exceptions obviously but that it's not going to be like a bunch of iu kids putting on this program that it's going to be a bunch of people from across the country putting on this program in kind of the core team. Um, it's me, one other guy from IU and then a guy at Villanova. And then in the periphery, the guy at WashU, Arkansas, et cetera. And <laughs> so no, it's not an IU team and we're across the country. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And, and what are the biggest challenges just getting everyone on the same page uh, <laughs> with yeah, the way so, things are right now? So, you know, so it's the problem we're trying to solve is also a problem we are experiencing that being when we put out this, when we put out our application, we are not targeting it to any specific group of students. All of the, if we do ads or whatever, it's targeted to college students. Mm-hmm. We still get far more applications from your UPens, your Columbia. We've gotten so many applications from Columbia, you wouldn't believe. Columbia, Berkeley, all of the like schools where kids are like, oh yeah, I want to be a VC. Oh gosh. We yeah. get tons of applications from there. We don't get applications from the schools that we want to be on from, you know, from Clemson, from Carolina. I'm from South Carolina, if I didn't say that's why I talk about Clemson and Carolina a lot. Um, From those school, we don't, or or the IUs, because kids aren't thinking, I want to be a VC when I graduate. And that's the problem Mm -hmm. we're trying to solve through the program. But we also experience it as we're recruiting for the program. Yeah, that's really interesting. And obviously, we hear, right, opportunity isn't equally distributed, but talent probably is. And so I, I laugh not at what you said, just because I try to work that into every interview like this, but now you've beat me to it. <laughs> okay. That's funny. Yeah. The, the guy I spoke to a week ago, so he was, his name was Hugo M. Selim. And so he had a similar problem, but at a completely different situation. So he was a venture partner at something called the family. 
which is a European VC firm in Europe, or I said European already, but <laughs> specifically in France. And so he was French and he said, the problem I always had was I was, I always just, whenever I spoke to an entrepreneur, I was trying to make them 10 times more ambitious. He said in the US that we don't have that problem. But he said, whenever I spoke to someone in France or in Germany or, or wherever they went, I was always trying to make them more ambitious and get them to, you know, see what was possible. And so he was also really interesting because he was doing research into what he calls the post-permission world. Um, and what he means by the post-permission world is that the traditional gatekeepers of particularly VCs, but you can look at it in other industries with the rise of independent publishers. I'm sure you've noticed like doing newsletters versus getting news from traditional media outlets like the New York Times. And so that was one of the things that struck me immediately when I heard about you and what you were doing. Because there, there wasn't a, any sort of gatekeeper in your sense. You just started it. You were like, okay, I'm going to create a VC scout network. And to me, part of the reasons it's so interesting to talk to you is that it's mind-boggling in the sense that you can't just go and be the same age I am and just start like an undercover <laughs> scout network on, on colleges, but you did it. And so that's part of the thing that I'm researching is what does it mean to live in this post-permission world? But it was just so interesting that Hugo are using a little bit of the same language in the mm -hmm. sense that you want people to see themselves differently. And that will make an actual difference in the world if people, like you talked about South Carolina, obviously, but just people in different parts of the country where, you know, that aren't Stanford or MIT or places where VC deal flow is already so high, start to see themselves as having the potential to do the same things. I, to, to that same effect, I, I had a really awesome boss last summer at URX. He might be an interesting person for you to talk to, actually, though he's not Gen Z by any means. Um, yeah, so he, he was talking about, what do you want to do after this? What do you want your career to be? And I was like, you know, I'd really love to be in venture capital. So I'm working on the, you, know, you got to go do your time in investment banking or do go work at some startups and then figure something out. And he was like, no, if you want to be a VC, go be a VC. <laughs> don't don't do all this you know other stuff in the intermediary go get after it and i think four <laughs> days later we had a website for undercover vc there you uh, go not not knowing what it was at the time but starting to to build that legitimacy and have those conversations and, and figure it out you were talking about gatekeepers though and that's an interesting point because the the intermediary solution we considered was in the meantime in in between arriving at the kind of lots of funds, lots of students model was, should we go and try to sell one of the mega funds on just being, doing like a single LP kind of thing mm -hmm. with us in the same way dorm room fund is backed by first round. You know, yeah. we explored the idea of trying to be undercover VC backed by Greylock, you know, or, or whoever yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. That we still decided did not let us move as fast as we wanted to move and would tie us up with a bunch of regulatory stuff up the pipe. But uh, yeah, talking that, that would have been our gatekeeper had we taken that model. Um, by picking this model, we completely sidestepped any kind of gatekeeper, which is yeah has worked well. Yeah, no, well, that sounds like a cool guy. And that's definitely awesome advice. It's just, yeah, just go do it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, but it's interesting that you mentioned that. I'm I'm interested in what, I guess, steps that contrary, but also dorm room fund um has had to take to become the way they have 
but the the thing I that can, what I can answer that a little bit because they are cool stories. Oh yeah, go ahead. Contrary, I think it's I believe it's Eric, but I don't want to get that wrong. I, yeah, I think um, you're right. Yeah, I believe it's Eric. Literally got in his car, started driving to campuses, talking to founders, talking to uh, kids interested in VC, and literally spent like two years or a year. I th- I think he did like two years separately or something just driving across the country, going to these college campuses, talking to people, They're like sleeping on couches, sleeping in the car, getting after it, recruiting people. And then dorm room funds, I think dorm room funds just invented the whole student VC game. They're like 14 years old now or something. Oh gosh. Um, they, I don't know. I kind of, that's the number that came to me. I don't know where it came from though. So it might be entirely incorrect. We'll double check. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. But I mean, they like invented the, the student VC game. So gotta, gotta respect the elders in that sense, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you were saying before reminded me, I don't know if you've read Eric Tornberg on, he's mm-hmm. a, yeah, he's a newsletter he's on a, Substack. Yeah. He's at ground up. I think he's at village global and beyond deck. Yeah. That's what it is. Right. Yeah. But what's so interesting about him is he's a really talented writer. And so he wrote this article called build personal moats. Mm-hmm which is exactly what it sounds like. You do something and you just continue doing it day after day until that's your thing. And so you've built a personal moat because it would take someone years of dedicated time and deep work to catch up to where you are. And so he got a lot of replies on that, specifically about being a VC. Mm -hmm. How do I just go and be a VC? And his response was the same. He's like, just go be a VC. Invest in your friend's company. Even if it's like, a thousand dollar check. And I think that was really interesting to me because for someone our age, a thousand dollars is not a small amount of money. I'd be surprised if a lot of people our age even had a thousand dollars just to give to someone. But I, I think it's just this idea of just go do it and go do it as soon as possible and start building that advantage in. That was such an interesting idea to me. That's what I know my dad back in like 2010, I think explored the idea of raising a fund himself and working towards the same goal that I'm working towards now, rather with building entrepreneurship and and startup culture in South Carolina, rather than underrepresented campuses. But for him, he was at a position in his life where he had, you know, two kids in, I guess, elementary school, had a mortgage to pay and a family to take care of. And it just, he was not at a point in his life and career where he could take that kind of risk and take two years to, to raise a fund. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm here. I'm fortunate to have my rent paid and my food. Like I really have no reason not to start something. And I think that's true for a lot of student entrepreneurs. The risk now is not existent. Like literally yeah. the worst thing that can happen, can happen as a result of this is my GPA might drop a little because of the hours I'm spending on it. Yeah. And that's, if that's all that happens, there, there are plenty of entrepreneurs that have, gone broke and been in debt for 10 years because of their startup. If that's all the risk a student entrepreneur has, then why the hell wouldn't you start some? Right. Yeah. It's a great example of this is the least riskiest time basically in our lives versus yep. if you have people that are relying on you literally now, to keep them alive. If you drop out of school to start something, <laughs> that might be a different story. I, I'm not an advocate of the pre-revenue dropout. but Really? Um, that's, that's what Fion did. That's what Sudarshan yeah, did. Yeah. And I mean, power to them if they, it's not if something it I can do. Power to them. No, I'm, if, listen, if you've got something good, absolutely, like get, cut all your distractions out, get the heck off campus, you know, get wherever you need to go to, to make it happen. 
I think there are too many people that are like, oh yeah, I have an idea. Let me drop out and, and get after this. And if that's your risk profile and that's where you're at, power to you. But I could never advise somebody to drop out free revenue. Yeah, by all means. Do you feel that at all though? Just because you have this thing that you're really excited about that you want to go full throttle on, but you also have these other things on the side that you have to focus on. Do you feel like you mentioned cut out all your distractions? Do you feel like there's distractions at times that you wish you didn't have? I think, yeah, I think that's true for, for everybody all the time. I got I don't, I, I hate doing laundry takes an hour out of my week, but I could be doing something else. There's everybody like, regardless of sure, yeah. how ruthless you are in cutting distractions, everybody's going to have distractions from their main thing. And it's, it's figured out what that main thing is, right? Cause undercover VC, I'm super passionate about it's not designed to be revenue generating. It won't be revenue generating in, 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 unless we make a, take a major shift in model. So, yeah. uh, so I'm, I, I would say it's a, a co-priority with school cause I'm still here working on two degrees. Right. Yeah. Doing, doing my thing there. I don't know. That's honestly, I, I can't give good advice there cause that's so like personal related to your situation. Mm-hmm. I'm also in a situation where I, I am fortunate not to be footing really any of my expenses, which also shifts my, my perspective there. If I were paying for college, then I might have, have a completely different opinion, but, um, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I can't give good advice there just because those situations are, are so specific to the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested just because you, you mentioned advice. You have these founders and people that are really passionate about their particular ideas coming into undercover BC and, and talking to you guys. What's what sort of the stuff that you tell them? You talked about community building and, and being intentional about making sure that they feel involved and in, in, in the community. But what sort of, from an advice sense, do you tell them beyond just connecting them with VCs? The worst thing I see, this is like a what not to do. The worst thing I see people do, and I'm sure it's been successful for, for some people, but people that do meet somebody have no prior relationship with them and are like, yeah, I want you to be the CTO of my startup. And it happens so often in, in the, these kind of online communities we're talking about. And that's just such a... Yeah, all the time, I bet. It, would, you, it, it happens a lot. Um, particularly with student entrepreneurs, often on the kind of campuses that I'm talking about, because there just aren't, again, it's, it all comes back to the problem we're trying to solve, but there aren't maybe a lot of students that are interested in starting a company with you. So you go and post on your Gen Z mafia or your ladder or wherever, and go find somebody that's, that's down to hack on something with you. I think that's fine in the kind of let's play with this and see if it's cool sense, but there are too many people that are like, yeah, looking for co-founder. And it's, you just, you don't want to start something with people you don't know that you don't have a, a relationship with. Yeah. That you're setting yourself up either that you're not going to be people that can work together or you're going to, you know, get screwed because they have no loyalty to you. Yeah. I, I definitely understand the impulse. It's you have a great idea you're excited about it and you're just like, you go build this for me. Right. And it's, I, I heard the co-founder relationship being described as a 90 day, you know, fiance or, or something like that, which is, mm-hmm. I think it's true, right? You have to have some sort of compatibility with that person because you're literally in, you're going to battle together, essentially. I, um, I'm to, for reference, my co or my undercover VC co-founders, 
my roommate on the other side of this wall. Yeah. My best friend from middle school at Villanova. There are people that I had like <laughs> immense pre-existing relationships with. Yeah. We've at points we have had other people on the team. Every single time there's been an issue or, or some reason why that person is not still on our team because we, we didn't have a pre-existing relationship prior to, to working on this together. Does it come down to trust, do you think? Knowing that, okay, I've had experiences with this person. I know this person is a good person. Because, you know, the other side of the coin that I wonder about is just if you do something with your friends or your really good friends, that are you afraid that sort of being in a professional relationship with them and also having a personal relationship with them, you know, could, you know, strain one or the other? Yeah, obviously it could. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you're, you know, to simplify it maybe too much, if you're a good person and a, and a good leader, then you're going to side. At the end of the day, if you're good to people and you take care of people, yeah, it's all going to be okay. You know, I also know that they're neither of the, the important bit is neither of them are on the team because they're my friends. Right. They're my friends who happen to be Austin up at Villanova is he just, he spent almost a year in Singapore through the, through the COVID term break from March to October. He was in Singapore working as a VC analyst. Oh gosh. Yeah. You know, you so he's like more, more than qualified. He's not, again, not there because he's my friends. He's there because he's the right person for the job. Likewise, mm-hmm. Owen on the other side of this wall runs, runs marketing for, it's a really funny situation. Actually, he's, he looks like me runs uh market it'll make sense it runs marketing for some like major cosmetics brands targeting african-american women um okay and is running like big time marketing stuff you know from that dorm room or i guess uh, from that bedroom yeah um, and i i say that not to not to, to brag on their behalf but to say that it's important that people not be on the team because they're your friends but because no. they're the, the right person for the job no it's good i think it's important to brag on your friend's behalf Cause if you don't, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I talk to people all the time. And one of the things that stuck with me, I was speaking to a marketer, uh, and the thing that he said that stuck out to me was just people don't care about you necessarily, but they care about what you can do for them. And so I think that's the problem that you're getting at with this whole looking for a co-founder thing is that, you know, first of all, you have to, if, if you're going to do that, you have to pitch your co-founder extremely well you have to get them on the table being like, okay, I see the opportunity here and mm-hmm. this is exciting. And this is, I, I think it's fine to honestly look at it and say, okay, this is going to make us a lot of money, but also <laughs> it's going to provide a lot of value to the world. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think cause, cause I see it, you know, everywhere. I even saw one on LinkedIn the other day that was just like looking for a co-founder, like massive benefits. And I'm just like, <laughs> if this is the position you're in, why would anyone, there should be right. someone within your circle willing to take a bet on that idea. Right. That, yeah, that's a great way to put it. I hadn't considered that angle of it. I, I'd only thought about what happens after that input from before. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I was just taking a look at the time. Obviously I would love to speak to you for, for much longer, but the last question that I always ask people is what makes you the most hopeful or excited for the future for, I don't want to overcomplicate it, but for, sure, for yeah. humanity generally for either one, either um, one small for you, for me. Yeah. For you, for humanity, whichever one, whatever you're hopeful or excited about. I think to, to that same point you made about the post permission world, I think a lot of the barriers that 
have existed the last through through history mm-hmm. have suddenly been wiped out by COVID. That people are there. COVID has created a context for like apps like Clubhouse for for lots of Zoom calls with with influential random people for fireside stuff like Gen Z Mafia puts on. I don't think any of that would really have happened had COVID not sent everything digital. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really excited to see as we move back to in-person, is this kind of accessibility that is suddenly you know, present to people of, in positions of power, is that going to continue or are they going to retreat back to their, back to their warm intro speaking fee bubble? Yeah. Um, but that, that's what I'm excited to, excited to see. I think that's a huge opportunity for students if they, if they really get after it. Speaking of like much smaller scale opportunities, DoorDash filed an S1 this morning. So we'll be, be looking into that as an investment opportunity. But yeah, I think it's never been a better time to be a student founder just because student founders or not just student founders, but students in general have never had more of a potential to make um, a bigger impact. So it's really exciting. To, to that end, I know Mark Cuban is an IU alum. That dude's been like zooming with random kids from the business school, like giving advice and stuff just because he's bored in, in quarantine. That's hilarious. Um, like, I mean, there was one not too long ago that was open to the student body that he was like on, like in his office wearing, he it's the Mavericks that he owns. Yeah. Wearing like the Mavericks jersey, sweaty, just came off the court playing some pickup. Oh my gosh. Just sitting on Zoom, like answering kids random questions about him and what he does and their careers and his time at IU and stuff. And that kind of situation, like that wouldn't happen without the accessibility we have from COVID. And I think that's a, a huge opportunity. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Wait, thank you so much for talking to me. It was great you. to you know learn more about you and super excited for Undercover VC, of course. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah. All right. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Please like, subscribe, tweet, text, and share so that more people can find the podcast. Take care and we'll see you next time.